In 2019, Boris Johnson's Conservatives won a thumping majority in the general election, and it was based on a manifesto, that bond of trust that exists between political parties and the voters. It was 64 pages long, and yes, of course, predominantly, it was about getting Brexit done. But of those 64 pages, just one page was dedicated to getting towards a net zero CO2 target by the year 2050. Now, today the country is beset with some really quite serious problems. Inflation is rising and it very much looks like it's here to stay. The cost of living for average families going up sharply. Shortages, well, we saw it, didn't we, with the fuel crisis recently, but much speculation that many kids' toys may not be available this Christmas. Crime, a real issue, a major concern. Nearly 20,000, well, certainly 19,500 people who've come across the English Channel already this year that need to be settled. And when voters, especially Conservative voters, are asked, what are their priorities? Well, climate and climate change and going green isn't even in the top four. And yet, Boris Johnson seems to be talking about this in a way that is almost obsessive. It started last year with his love of wind energy. This is what Boris Johnson had to say then. Uh, we're going to be putting a big bet on wind power. We want to be the Saudi Arabia of, uh, of wind. I don't know whether Saudi Arabia is on the call, uh, but we, we, we want to... Uh, we have massive potential. I mean, we've got huge, huge gusts of wind uh, going around uh, the uh, around uh, the north of our country, Scotland. Quite extraordinary potential we have for, for wind. Oh yes, extraordinary potential when the wind blows. The trouble is, in early September, it was down to around about three percent of our generating capacity, leaving us very, very exposed to gas. But today he's gone one further. Today he was talking about hydrogen. It was the the strike price. The idea of the contract for, uh, for difference that enabled the private sector to come in with wind power. And that's what we're now doing with hydrogen, because we want to be the, the Klondike of carbon capture and storage, the, 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 the Qatar, the Qatar of hydrogen. I think Qatar may, may already be the Qatar of hydrogen, uh, but, we, but, we want, but we want to be with you. And I think hydrogen is part of the solution. You see, it's all pretty obsessive stuff. And overnight, an advertisement that he features in with Prince Charles. Let's have a look at Prince Charles, shall we? I'm old enough to have a grandson. Like you, he's learning how climate change is causing the big storms and floods, the droughts, fires, and food shortages we're seeing around the world. When I was his age, people had no idea about the damage they were doing. But by the time I was a teenager, I started to see that if we didn't stop polluting our planet, we would face a very dangerous future indeed. Interesting, isn't it? Carbon dioxide is now a pollutant. That's interesting. Now, of course, Prince Charles has been banging on about this for the last 30 years. Uh, it's almost getting a bit depressing listening to him. I do hope the Queen, and I, when we hear she's given up the booze, she's on a bit of a health kick, and I do hope she really looks after herself and reigns for a very, very long time. Now, overnight, some more news. Um, some good news, I think, on nuclear. That is that the Sizewell Sea plant will go ahead. But some of the big headlines this morning were there are going to be £5,000 grants for heat pumps for your home. And that's £5,000 towards the cost of a heat pump. 
Depends on the size of the property you live in. Uh, probably 10 to 12,000 pounds is what a heat pump will cost for the average house. Up to nearly 20,000 pounds for those living in big rural properties. And are heat pumps the solution to everything? Well, no. Actually, they consume a lot of electricity and they are far less efficient in terms of providing heat than gas boilers. But really, does it make any difference? Because it's only going to be 90,000 homes that get the subsidy and there are 27 million homes in this country. My question tonight is, did you vote for all of this? Did you vote for a Conservative Prime Minister who would turn out to be an obsessive Green and who, through his policies, is going to put very big... already is, to some extent, but will put very big bills on your household. Let me know what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet at gbnews. Now, to discuss heat pumps, to discuss whether 90,000 makes any difference whatsoever... I'm joined by Malcolm Grimston, Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London. Malcolm, good evening and welcome to the programme. Thank you. Uh, 90,000, it makes almost no difference at all. It's merely a gesture, isn't it? I think part of what we're hearing about here is a kind of trying to pump prime a market which will bring the price of this technology down. And that's what we've seen with many technologies in the past. Uh, is that once you start making them, once you start building up a manufacturing industry, the price will come down. You're quite right that uh, a few tens of thousands is a relatively small part of the problem. But it is a problem. I, I don't think we can dismiss climate change uh, uh, anymore uh, and recognise it needs to be done. And this is one string. I think what worries me about it is when we start talking as if there were silver bullets here. There aren't. There's a whole range of things we're going to have to do. You've mentioned the, the good news on nuclear. Uh, there are many other things that we need to do. So there's no single answer. But a whole lot of things making a contribution could well get us there. But is it true that heat pumps use a lot more electricity? Because if that's true, it becomes almost a little bit self-defeating, doesn't it? Well, I mean, a heat pump is, in effect, a fridge working in reverse. Uh, there's a thing called the second law of thermodynamics that tells us that heat doesn't flow from cold areas to hot areas spontaneously. You've got to put some energy in. And with heat pumps, the best ones, you're probably getting out about five times as much energy as you put in. So it takes a certain amount of energy to force the heat from the cold into the warm. But then once you've done that, you are getting a very significant net benefit. Now, in terms of... Uh, and the other benefit is that you can make electricity with low-carbon sources such as nuclear and, and some of the renewables, uh, whereas with gas, we're pretty much, for the foreseeable future, stuck with fossil gas. There are other options, but they're a long, long way into the future. And the reliance on wind energy. I mean, you know, Johnson was saying today, uh, again, that we're going to be the Saudi Arabia of wind. He wants to quadruple the number of offshore wind farms in this country. But we saw, didn't we, for that period of several weeks back in early September, when the wind just did not blow in a substantial way. And my big worry is the over-reliance on wind means we get to February, a great big anti-cyclone sits over the UK for a couple of weeks, you know, and we get fog and frost and no wind, and we could find ourselves, we literally could find ourselves, with the lights going out. What is this obsession with wind energy subsidised on the bills of businesses and ordinary households? Doesn't it need a rethink? 
you can certainly manage a certain degree of, of wind on the system because uh, any source of energy goes up and down, even nuclear, which is very re uh, reliable. You have to maintain the plants from time to time. You have to take them offline. Um, the question with wind, it's, it's actually not just when the wind isn't blowing. As you get more and more wind onto the system, you start getting a problem when they're all working at the same time because that can flood the system. Yeah, yeah, it can flood the system with power and start, in the worst case, melting the wires, but certainly <laughs> cause problems for electronic equipment. And also, when you're going from one state to the other, you have problems with trying to manage the system that can bring other alternative energy on and off. So that unless we get storage on a level which is just pretty much in inconceivable at the moment, and of course brings enormous needs for mineral mining, very significant environmental challenges of its own, then there's going to be a limit to what wind can provide. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be using wind at all. And indeed, uh, offshore wind is more reliable than onshore wind. The winds tend to blow more steadily. Onshore, we've got the land getting in the way, and that tends to affect uh, the, the, the speed of the wind. So good offshore wind now is around sort of 40 45% reliable. Now, that's still well below gas or nuclear or the yeah. reliable one, but it's, <laughs> it's a significant improvement from where we were. And I go back to the point, there's no silver bullet within this. There is a range of things which are needed. There are many times when we do see wind providing half our electricity and our carbon figures look very good, and we shouldn't lose that. But we need to recognise that there are other times when we need backup which can take over. No, well, I, I, I remain somewhat sceptical about wind, but I'm pro-nuclear. I understand what you say. There is no silver bullet. But finally, can I ask you, are you pleased that Boris Johnson has turned the Conservative Party into the Green Party? I'm, I'm studiedly neutral on the politics, I hope you mind. I think it's very important for us in the academic community to be so. Um, personally, I believe that climate change is an issue that we need to manage. I don't think necessarily it's species ending, as some of the more extreme claims are, but it is nonetheless the potential. And we should bear in mind the cost of not doing anything about it, if it leads to, for example, those big floods we had here in London uh, not so very long ago, if we're going to have to build a higher tidal barrage because of uh, higher uh, sea level, which looks uh, very likely, there are some enormous, enormous costs if salt water starts coming into our fresh water uh, areas and starts destroying our agriculture. The costs of not doing anything about this are pretty horrendous as well. And yeah, Malcolm, uh, I think... Malcolm, uh, Malcolm, we're producing 1% of global CO2. China's producing 28%, and that figure's going up with every single year that passes. And they're not even going to attend COP26. Don't we need to get some sense of perspective here? Oh, I, I agree. But it is a matter of of us doing our best. We're actually in the in the rank of countries which have already emitted as much of the carbon as we'd be allowed to if everybody on the planet had the same allocation. We're second only to the United States uh, within that. And from that point of view, we do have... Uh, yes, that's right, if you take that, because we, of course, were first into the Industrial Revolution. Well, and yeah. so we... We've, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not putting this forward as a, as a rigorous scientific thing, but just as a general feeling. I think many people will feel that the countries like uh, the UK and the US particularly, uh, as China's living standards are still very long way behind ours for most of rural China, urban China is very different. Um, I think if we're in a position of to be, being seen to be preaching to the rest of the world and not being prepared to do our own bit with it, then I think that will, will be unfortunate. But equivalently, you're quite right. A lot of this has to be levering in the enormous developing economies, yep. and China and India are the two obvious ones. 
and working closely with them. Uh, China's nuclear record, incidentally, is quite extraordinary, the rate at which they're putting nuclear plants in. I think they have a real lesson to teach the rest of the world there. And we should be open to that as long as we can manage the political difficulty. But I think it is genuinely a world issue, and, and I do think the UK should be playing its part. And well, the Prime Minister, whatever you say about the Prime Minister, he's a great salesman. <laughs> and and uh, he, I, I rather I, enjoyed listening look, to him. He's going to be, you know, the great salesman at COP26. It's just that China won't be there. Malcolm Grimston, thank you very much indeed for joining us and giving us your perspective on this debate. Let me know what you think. Is this what you voted for? GBviews at gbnews.uk. Today, just a few days after the horrendous killing of Sir David Amos uh, down at his constituency surgery in Southend, police today formed a ring of steel around Michael Gove today after he was swarmed by suspected, well, some call them anti-vaxxers, they call themselves freedom fighters, but the cabinet minister was walking alone in Westminster. I mean, it's, it beggars belief when he was targeted by a frenzied mob who rushed him and a squad of police who routinely patrol the roads around government buildings swooped in to shield the Tory from these pro-freedom protesters. Let's have a look. So it's pretty ugly stuff. You can hear the bleeps because that's the language. It's intimidating. He had the police not been there. Michael Gove would have been very, very frightened indeed. I know that feeling. I've been in that mob, uh, which is why, of course, I always, you know, after it happened to me a couple of times, I always had private security. I was arguing here on GB News last night passionately that members of parliament, and especially cabinet ministers, and those as prominent as Michael Gove, should not be walking the streets of Westminster on their own. They should have security. They should have some eyes and ears around them. And we can't rely on the police to do this. The police have got too much else to do. Way too much else to do. But there are, and the argument I made last night is there are huge numbers of people out there who've served in the armed forces in Afghanistan and in Iraq who would be only too happy in many cases to be trained to go out, look after MPs and safeguard our democratic process. And I made that point very strongly yesterday. And interestingly, I've had a lot of support for that coming through today. Well, I'm joined by security expert Will Geddes. Will, good evening. Evening, Nigel. I mean, what the hell is Michael Gove doing walking alone through the streets of Westminster? I mean, he's almost asking for it, isn't he, really? Yeah, it's, it's quite baffling. I mean, with the barometer of uh, hate at the moment with the various different protest groups, whether they be environmental or anti-vax or otherwise, there's a very, very hostile air at the moment, you know, with certain groups. And someone as prominent and recognisable as Michael Gove, uh, wandering around in Westminster, where there's always, you know this, Nigel, there's always some group that's protesting around there. He's easy pickings without any kind of security. Yeah, I mean, absolutely mad. Well, what about my idea? You know, as I say, we can't have hundreds of police out there looking after our MPs when they're going about their business. What about my idea of ex-service men and women, many of whom have not found, have not fitted back in 
fully, properly to society since they served in Afghanistan and Iraq. Surely we could train these people relatively quickly and make our MPs one whole lot safer. Well, the security industry already, Nigel, is very, very large. There are a lot of operators. And in this country, we have a thing called the Security Industry Authority, which is the authority that licenses individuals to carry out security taskings, whether they be contract security, working on offices or in retail environments, or all the way up to, as I am, a fully licensed closed protection officer. The, the question is, is that, yes, there are plenty of guys out there who could be trained, but they would have to go through that licensing process, which has background checks, ensures that people don't come to it with criminal records so that the people that they're looking after can be looked after appropriately. The question really, Nigel, is down to budget. It's whether the government wants to assign that budget. Now, I know that the royalty and diplomatic protection teams within the Met, they're very, very good but they're very understaffed. I know that certainly a couple of friends of mine who are in there, they've been even going to guys who've sub subsequently retired and asking them to come back. But you can't have people of prominence like Michael Gove, who once was in the cabinet, wandering around and being an easy target. And as I've always said to you, Nigel, it's the path of least resistance that any criminal or terrorist is looking for. Yeah, no, Well, Look, all I can say is the sooner we get on with this, the better. Otherwise... Our MPs will not be meeting us at surgeries, will not be walking down our high streets on Saturday mornings. Um, and probably a lot of people will say, do you know what? I'm not going into politics. Well, Giddes, thank you very much indeed for joining me. In a moment, we go to have a look at what happened today in the European Parliament in Strasbourg. Really quite a bust up between the European Commission and the Polish Prime Minister. Is poll exit possibly at some point soon on the cards? The Prime Minister has become a green evangelist on a level that is truly extraordinary. And I mean, asking you the question tonight, is this what you voted for? Debs responds by email by saying, I didn't vote green, but more importantly, I didn't vote for Covid passports. This is the road to a North Korean-style dictatorship. Well, it'll be a slow road, but it could be. Claire, via email, says, I didn't vote to be hammered financially by people to whom the costs won't be a burden, and especially not whilst other countries continue to pump out carbon regardless. Yeah, I say it's a Green Party. It's not. The Conservative Party is not a Green Party. It's the Richmond Green Party, right? It's, it, you know, very, very wealthy people living in four million pound houses. They don't bother about a heat pump costing a couple of bob. And to hell with tens of millions of others, I think is the attitude. Bran, via email, says, I'm sure that most people voted for the Tories to get Brexit done. I did not vote for the Green Party. Are you listening, Boris Johnson? Claire says, it is not what I voted for, to see people being strong-armed into dubious tech and colder homes and saddled with the debts to pay for it. Absolutely not. It's a total disgrace. Now, this is really interesting because a couple of weeks ago, the Polish court ruled that Polish law is supreme over EU law. Interestingly, in previous times, the German Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe has said similar things. But because it's Poland, they're all going bonkers. And here is the EU Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, in the European Parliament in Strasbourg today.
The European Commission is, at the moment, carefully assessing this judgment. But I can already tell you today, I am deeply concerned. This ruling calls into question the foundations of the European Union. It is a direct challenge to the unity of the European legal order. We cannot and we will not allow our common values to be put at risk. The Commission will act, and the options are all known. The Polish government has to explain to us how it intends to protect European money given this ruling of their constitutional court. Well, there she is, the headmistress, the unelected headmistress, telling the Poles what they can do. Isn't the level of condescension just something quite extraordinary? And, of course, the Poles, you know, who lived under communism uh, until just over 30 years ago, are beginning to say, we have had enough of this, and the Prime Minister, uh, Matthias Morawiecki, has responded by saying that we're being blackmailed, we're being starved, and whilst he hasn't directly threatened that Poland would leave the threat there is implicit. The Poles are not happy. The Hungarians are not happy. There is a giant cultural divide opening up between Western Europe and Central Europe, uh, and it's something that is not going to go away in a hurry. And I tell you what, uh, you know, if you back the Poles into a corner, they are always, always going to fight back. There's a fierce sense of national identity in a country that suffered so grievously in so many ways right throughout the 20th century, they're not going to be pushed around by some pygmy like von der Leyen. Now, over the course of the last few days, Saturday, Sunday and Monday, and you won't have seen this reported anywhere because it isn't news anymore, 806 people crossed the English Channel and were taken in and processed through Dover. This even included this boat yesterday. Let's take a look. This is extraordinary. And... These fellas came over from the coast straight in through the breakwater into Dover Harbour. Uh, they were then picked up and taken the last couple of hundred yards. I mean, they might as well have had a sign saying, please give me a four-star hotel. Oh, and a Domino's pizza, of course. A Domino's pizza when they arrive. 806 have come over the course of the last three days. And here's the extraordinary story. Yesterday, conditions in the channel were not pretty. Uh, some friends of mine who were out uh, watching this said, you know, literally these dinghies would disappear from view when they went down into the troughs. Border force, and they've got these great big cutters, you know, big, very expensive boats. Border force decided it was too rough for them to go. So they stayed in the harbour drinking tea and left the work too. Yes, you've guessed it, the RNLI. And so the Ramsgate boat was out. The Dover boat was out. The Dungeness boat was out. Indeed, the Dover boat was out for 12 hours yesterday. And remember, these boats are being staffed by volunteers, people who are either on holiday time or who are, given, who are giving up their income elsewhere to go out and do this job. And you can imagine the RNLI are pretty furious with border force saying that it's too rough to go and the pressure keeps mounting on the RNLI. And, yes... They are suffering resignations, and it's dreadful 
that this institution, this great institution, is being used and abused by border force in this way. Politically, this issue is much higher up the agenda than climate change when Conservative voters are polled. So what on earth is to happen? Well, joining me now is Ben Lochnane, fellow of the Bow Group, Britain, and indeed the world's oldest Conservative think tank. Ben, welcome to the show. It's really interesting, but particularly in the red wall seats, mm. uh, voters are absolutely going potty over this because they say, well, look, actually, part of the deal, part of the deal of voting Brexit and voting Conservative was taking back control of our borders, and here they are being sort of openly abused. What, I mean, politically, how do you sense the mood is amongst Conservative grassroots activists? Well, I do think that it's going to be the red wall, which is the key, and the coastal towns in the next election... That is where Boris is going to start to see himself losing seats. The moment he starts to lose seats, he starts to lose um, power over the Conservative Party and people will start to surround him and encircle him. So if Boris actually wants to maintain his leadership, if he wants to go in through the next ten years as a Thatcherite-style leader... As he has hinted As he's hinted, that's what he wants yeah, to do. Yeah. He needs to get on top of this issue, because otherwise the Red Wall and the coastal towns will fall and the, the bricks will start to crumble in the wall that is his leadership. Now, there is a new Borders and Nationality Bill, isn't there, sort of sneaking its way gently, slowly, yeah. through Parliament. Do you think that might make a difference? Oh, ostensibly it might do, but in, in practice I think there's absolutely nothing in there of any substance which will do anything to change the oh, current... Oh, Pretty Patel keeps telling us it's all going to be sorted out. And she has done for the past two years, and it hasn't, the numbers have only gone up. You know, we had, what, uh, 8,000 last year, 20,000 so far this year, up to 30,000. At what point in that, in that time has anything she said come true? No, well, I have to say I do tend to rather agree with that, Ben. But... Is it possible, is it possible, and we've seen and we've shown here on this programme some, fo some footage of Border Force practising turning dinghies around, is it practically possible to do that in the English Channel? It's not about turning them around, it's about stopping them from coming in the first place. And the way you stop that is, from, is by eliminating the pull factors. So you need to get rid of the four-star hotels and the Domino Pizzas and the free phones and the free clothes and all of the things which incentivise... Yeah, and the healthcare. And dental care. But fundamentally... And spending money. And all of that, every, you know, goodie bag. So are the French the right? Is it, bag. is it our fault, really? It is our fault, absolutely. It's also their fault because they're allowing them to continue to go. But you can't blame them for that because, you know, at the end of the day, these people have entered France illegally. If they want to leave illegally as well, why wouldn't they turn a blind eye? It's in their interest to do so. Isn't the one big problem here? And I... You know, I can see people are getting very angry about this. They're getting angry that they feel the promises aren't being kept in the manifesto. They're getting angry that they see the government going on different priorities, which we've been, you know, top-storying on tonight. But isn't the problem that Labour just have nothing to say in return to this. Well, this is one of the big problems, is that the government has no opposition, so there is no impetus for them to make any changes, because no-one is holding them to account. When they do something wrong, if there's no-one on the other side of the dispatch box saying, Prime Minister, why have you failed on this key issue, what is, what is going to prevent him from allowing it to continue to happen? I think the only option is for a unified opposition from the other side to come onto the playing field and to threaten the Red Wall and the coastal towns and put... And yet they won't do it. Now, in Folkestone, in Folkestone today... Let's have a look at this footage, shall we, of Folkestone today? Because uh, this really is quite astonishing. Uh, there's been a puppet, a puppet image of a child migrant that's been travelling. Here it is. It's, um, it's about 12 feet tall. There it is next to Folkestone Pier. Um, and this is supposed to be a child migrant. Um, and 
you know, the refugees welcome group were out. Jude Law turned up. Um, quite what it's supposed to mean, I really don't know, other than to say that we are uh, big-hearted people and we're very, very generous. It just kind of doesn't quite hit the truth, does it? That over 90% of those that come are young men. Young men arriving without any documentation whatsoever. And if that doesn't pose something of a threat, a security threat, I don't know what does. Ben, thank you for joining me. And I will be in Folkestone this Thursday. Yep, I sure will. It is going to be Farage at Large in Folkestone. And we will be discussing this. Don't you worry. In a moment, I will be talking pints with Tim Stanley, leader writer at The Daily Telegraph. Joining me in the GB News pub tonight for Talking Pines is Telegraph columnist and author Tim Stanley. Tim, welcome to Thank Talking you. Pines. Mm. You are prolific in your columns and you talk about the new yeah. pet dog you've got, but you talk about, you know, big political issues and, you know, from Kent, educated in Kent, not very far away from me. The fascinating bit is that you were a Labour candidate in That's 2005. Right. So how long did this sort of left-wing phase last? Well, I have to say, first of all, the last time you and I met was at a Boxing Day hunt. In it was, Kent. it was. So that shows how far to the right I've moved. the horror. <laughs> it was <laughs> just although, research. Although, actually... Actually, there's nothing right with a left wing, is there, about, about... Oh, not at all. And that's what I discovered while I was there. It's an expression of countryside identity, which I didn't appreciate. And the dogs are gorgeous and terrifying. Was that the first time you've been to one? First time I've ever been to one. And, and people well. bring their ordinary dogs along. And it's like when you go on a beach and there's this muscle-bound guy and you're this skinny little pigeon shepherd. That's, that's what a German shepherd looks, lo looks like next to a, a, a proper uh, foxhound. And they're beautiful, aren't they? They are beautiful And the great dogs. thing about the hunt meets, that one that we've been going to, is the bar opens at 10am. <laughs> <laughs> On Boxing Day. Yeah, yeah it's pretty when you need it. It's when you need it. Uh, anyway, I, I, yes, I, uh, I was a radical. I was very left-wing. In fact, I'd call myself a Marxist. I was on the left, oh, the Labour Party. So well, even though, I, even though my uh, meteoric uh, rise and fall was under Tony Blair, really, I disliked him. I was a Benite. Uh, I regarded yes. myself almost as an entryist in the Labour Party. This was the vehicle for socialism. Uh, and and I, I really loved it, and I, I have no regrets whatsoever. But ben was consistent, wasn't he? Ben was consistent, and he disliked the EU and as principled. well. And principled. And that's one of the things that attracted me to that group of people. They had sort of lost the argument because the Cold War was over, but if there had been a revolution coming, I would have joined it. So I was pretty much on the left of the Labour Party. And Mr Corbyn, was he a friend of yours? I met him once, but he was always slightly on the outskirts because he was really a foreign policy buff, which is one of the... It's a bit surprising that what he ended Palestine up getting... Is it was about Palestine. Really, John McDonnell was the big hope of the hard left in the Labour Party, but he just chose not to run that one time, and that turned out to be the one time that it worked. Had I stayed in the Labour Party on that trajectory, I would have been a Corbynite. So you stood in the general election? I stood in the know? general election of 2005 in your for the Labour constituency? Party. In my home constituency of 718 Kent. <laughs> As a radical leftist. And I came third, but very narrowly third. And the contest in 7X is always for second place. No one cares about first. We're left wing. No one wants to win. <laughs> the joy is coming second with dignity, and I didn't. Uh, but I tell you what, uh, in 2005, uh, I was wet behind the ears, innocent. Uh, I thought everyone loved Labour. And it was when I actually <laughs> campaigned properly in the working class part of 7X, which is mm. Swanley, the mm. northern part, part of the town. Yeah. For the first time in my life, uh, people said to me, immigration, immigration, immigration. 
And this not only surprised me, but it slightly wounded me as an innocent middle-class left-winger because I thought, I'm left-wing, I want open borders, I assume you want open borders, Don't we, aren't we all good internationalists here? And I discovered they were really worried about immigration. And when I went back to the Labour Party, I took the view that you need to address this. And they became the UKIP voters. And they became the not... in Swanley became the UKIP Actually, voters. some of them became BNP voters, and Swanley became, I think, the first place south of the they Thames win a seat, to elect a BNP councillor. I, I remember that. So you can take the view on the left, you can say, we're not going to deal with those issues, you racist pe- we're not going to have... We're not gonna, or you can take the view, look, our people are hurting, they're worried about something, let's address it. So getting out and canvassing, knocking on doors, campaigning, and by the way, I love it... Mm. And it restores your faith in humanity because oh, yes. most people are actually really very, very nice. You know? Yes. You're on their doorsteps, you're on their terms. Yeah. But they are very nice and it does restore your faith a bit in, in, in people and society. And was that the beginning of your, of your political change then? It's never one thing and it's so tempting to draw yeah. a narrative. It's yeah. lots of different things. It's because I became religious. It's because I started paying tax. Uh, it's because I had more to do with America and I, I fell a lover, in love a bit with America. I, I left under Ed Miliband. And I think that was because the party faced a choice. It could either elect David Miliband, which was Blair Mark II, but was a serious shot at government, or, sod it, let's elect Diane Abbott or someone like that and go properly left-wing and offer people socialism. I can't imagine what the the finances would have been. (laughs) And instead they they went for Ed, and I think that was the moment which I thought, they're neither principled nor serious about government, Mm. and I want to go away and do journalism. So that was when I severed my connection with the Labour Party, and since then, just like a dinghy on the ocean, I've been drifting further and further away from them. And now a leader writer on the Daily Telegraph. That's right, yes. Which is the Tory graph, as it's known. <laughs> um, which has been, by the way, done very well with subscriptions. And you, you've had a good, Yes, it's doing fantastic. You've had a very good couple of years, I think. Yeah, it did very well out of Brexit, yes. So how would you describe yourself now? I would describe myself as a small-c conservative, a traditionalist, sometimes red Tory, sometimes mm. Christian socialist. It's impossible to nail me down. Tory anarchist is probably somewhere in between the two of those things. I and don't let, really know. And let's analyse. But I mean, I've been talking tonight about Boris Johnson, talking yeah. about the 2019 manifesto. OK, we know Brexit done was the big top line. 64 pages, one page, talking about a, a net carbon commitment for 2050. Right. Now it's obsessive. It's everywhere. Um, it's potentially quite dangerous, I think, that Rudy's taking us down. That's just my view. But, I mean, tell me something. You must sit there at the Telegraph... Mm looking to write the leaders with a group, and I, and I you know, know most of the people involved, and they are basically conservatives. They, they believe in conservative principles. Is Boris Johnson a conservative? Yeah, I think he is. Do you? But he's, he's a big C conservative, not a small C conservative. So it's all about the party. There is, there is an, a, a philosoph- philosophical tradition, which is conservatism, then there's a the conservative party, which is a beast which changes its clothes every few, every few generations or so. And which Boris himself out. has done in his career. That, that's what he's done too. And what part of the problem with uh, the conservative party is that its instinct is to preserve whatever status quo it inherits. So when the country turned towards New Labour, what did it do? It became a Blairite party. It ape it. And then when the country voted for Brexit, they adopted the Brexit issue. But at the same time, they're still trying to keep that middle-class progressivism going. And that, I think, is articulated through the green stuff. I'm personally pro-green, I have to say. I, I disagree with some people there. But what I find frustrating... Well, pro- we're all pro-green. Right. But what we're not pro, what I'm not pro is much of what's been done in the name of going right, right. Namely, taxing, and you should get this as an old socialist, taxing the poor and giving the money to the rich. Oh, I, I'd entirely agree with that. But what frustrates me about Boris's approach is he's not honest about where the technology is and he's not honest about the cost of it. 
So at this conference today, I had to watch that summit speech. There was a remarkable bit in which he admitted uh, that wind production had been down a bit because wind hadn't been blowing. And he said, get this. No, but he said this. He actually said this in front of an audience of international billionaires. He said, perhaps we need to propitiate the god of the winds and sacrifice a goat. <laughs> and Bill Gates burst out laughing. He also said at what, one point... What, what have they put in this? The Prime Minister also said at one point uh, that offshore wind farms were a cash cow. And he turned to Bill Gates and said, isn't that true? And Bill Gates just sort of smiled, uh, an empty smile. <laughs> the tech isn't there yet. It costs a lot so of money. why does he believe in all this? Or, or does he believe in it? I mean, what... <laughs> I think, I, I think there's a genuine conservative commitment there to ecology and the environment. I think it's the people he's surrounded by. Um, and I, I, th this is his mission. Come on, it's Carrie and the Goldsmiths. <laughs> it's the Richmond Green Party, isn't it? Yeah, but there, you can see, even you know, the rewilding, yeah. you can see where these agendas come from. He's been persuaded that this is going to happen and Britain should be the best in the world at it. And one thing I'll say for Boris, he's a patriot. He wants his country to lead. If, if the world is going off a precipice, he wants Britain going off that precipice first. <laughs> <laughs> With a great big union, Jack. Oh, Parachute. Yeah. Chief <laughs> Fleming. You know, wonderful. <laughs> Tim, you've written a book. Yeah. Um, whatever happened to tradition, history, belonging, and the future of the West. And this, this subject, the future of the West, is something that I'm very exercised by. I'm really worried about the virus, mm. Marxism. It keeps mutating and coming back once every few years in a different form. And everything I see with BLM, with identity politics, it's all designed not to bring us together, but actually to divide us uh, and to sort of bring down the end of Western civilization, Christianity. I mean, everything our society mm -hmm. has been built on. That's how I see this. Uh, but tell me, what are you trying to do with this book? I, th I, I think what you describe is part of the Western tradition. This is the problem, this is the pickle that the West is in, that much of its tradition, especially since the 18th century, is about constantly self-analysing and deconstructing. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of a, it's, a, it's a Western paradox that we have these definite values and traditions, but we're constantly deconstructing them. And right now we are in the process of deconstructing our history. Um, and the part of the problem with that is that if you, you can't agree upon a past, it's very difficult to imagine the future. You need these things. You need these reassuring things. I argue that tradition is not so something that's attractive. It's not just uh, Sunday roasts and cathedrals. It's also useful. It plugs us into a community. It gives us a common language. We can understand things and process things together. And it also connects us to our past so that someone described it as being like a slender handrail. It's something as we go through change, tradition doesn't stop change, uh, but as we go through change, yeah. you, can just, you can guide yourself along. And the problem with this constant deconstruction of our history is that we lose those traditions and thus we find it much harder to cope with change. And I think that can eventually lead to anarchy. And on the point about Christianity, mm. you know, we are a Christian country, we have a Christian constitution, we have an established church. Um, yeah, we'll come to that in a sec, uh, with the Queen at the head of it. Um, I know that you're a Roman Catholic. Yeah. And quite big news, isn't it, this week, really, that Michael Nazarelli, who was the yes. Bishop of Rochester, not too far from us, in fact, both within the Diocese of Rochester, where we grew up, um, and somebody that confirmed one of my children and uh, that I've known a bit over the years and really respected and thought, you know, it's important the Church of England has someone like this. Mm. He's left um, and joined... Uh, the Catholic Church. And I, and I can understand why. Anne Whittacombe, former colleague of mine, had made that journey some years before. 
Is the failure of the Church of England to actually stand for anything, is that part of our decline? Yeah, I think it is. I think the tragedy is that while traditions remain strong, institutions become weak. That's the centre of it. It's not, it's not the tradition of Christianity, because that contains certain eternal truths that many people believe in and bring uh, courage and peace to their life. It's the institution itself. And one interesting phenomenon with the West is that, to borrow a horror movie cliché, uh, the call often comes from inside the house. It's actually people inside the institutions who undermine the institutions. Mm. There's, there's a last man standing mentality, an idea that there's something noble in winding things down that you, you shouldn't be too overconfident or bullish this, about your institution. Wasn't this the foreign, the, the foreign office's right. view? Right. whole approach to Britain. And its decline. And that yes, was one that's of the exactly. reasons they loved the European yes. project. They thought it would replace empire yeah. somehow, and, that we, and they deluded themselves yeah. that we'd have a senior position. I, I, I must confess, what, I, what really riles me about it is it's so elitish and, elitist and snobbish. And it means you don't pass anything on. It's basically saying, I'm enjoying this thing. I'm enjoying the dress-up. I'm enjoying the privilege and, and all the wealth mm. and prestige that mm. comes with it. But I'm so sophisticated that I recognise its faults and I'm happy to let it go. Well, that's fine. But what happens to your kids and your grandkids? See, tradition's not just about thinking about the past. It's about passing on a heritage. It's, tradition is almost a verb. It's about passing things down. And we've reached a point where it feels like some people would be quite happy to let things go, let the churches go, let yeah, the No, no, I agree go. with you. I agree and with it's, you. And it's, it's yeah, so frustrating. It's, it's almost this sort of self-loathing, isn't it? It's, yes. I mean, I mean, Orwell wrote about this, Yeah. you know, going back to the sort of middle, late 1940s. He wrote about, what was the, the quote about, you know, that the, the, the middle upper class Englishman would rather steal from the poor box on a Sunday morning than stand for the national anthem. I mean, <laughs> it was that kind of thing that Orwell yes. was talking about. Yeah. And it was interesting in the Brexit debates, you know, in the 20-something years that I spent in the European Parliament, there was that certain type of Brit, nearly always English, actually. And the attitude was, oh, they do things so much better over here. You know, we're right. so awful, we're so ghastly. I mean, we're yeah. just dreadful, you know. It was all that negativity. But sticking on religion... Mm -hmm. What happened last Friday down in Leon Sea? Yeah. Sir David Amos, a very old-fashioned member of Parliament in a way, had the things that he believed in, stood up for them, people respected that. An old-fashioned MP, not there to climb the greasy pole, been there nearly 40 years, uh, brutally, brutally killed. I've been stunned, Tim, stunned of the narrative, most of it for the first 48 hours, mm -hmm. that this is all because of rancour and that politicians must come together mm. and be more consensual. It's all rubbish, isn't it? Politicians have always torn chunks out of each other. I feel some sympathy for them, I'm afraid. As someone particularly who works in Westminster okay, and some of these on. MPs over time become your friend, that's the context. I mean, I, I, there are two separate issues here. One is the context uh, to their emotional and psychological response. Many MPs are frightened they could be next. They feel I exposed. That. I know that. And they also feel that they, they do, a, a, they do a, the job the best they can. They're there to try to do good, like Mark Francois said in, in Parliament, no left-wing shrieking violence by any means. He was here last night. Right, so. darn good speech. And they feel they have to take a lot of nonsense. And so that's the context. But as for why he died, I, personally, I feel it's not unreasonable to wait before commenting. But there's an well, the element... Well, the police have of, already told us. Right, but there's also an element of 
many people detect an element of hypocrisy because when Joe Cox was murdered, mm. people were very quick to comment on why it had happened. Sadiq Khan being one of them. Right. Now, I, I, I'm one of those people who feels you should hold back and wait and see because I don't like overreaction. I'm that kind of conservative. I don't... Normally, Tim, I'd agree with you. But right. In, in this case, we know that the, the suspect, the main suspect, I think that's the legal language we have to use. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The main suspect was put on a prevent programme that... Was referred to. Referred to it and didn't seem to go anywhere. We know that the police <clears throat> are investigating right. an Islamist terrorist yeah. murder. And nobody wants to call it out. No, that's true. And, and in that debate in Parliament, sorry, it wasn't a debate, but in the tributes given in Parliament, uh, there was a lot of talk about, as you say, hate towards MPs, but not about that. Um, and Unbelievable. I think we all know that had this been a different kind of killing for a different kind of motive, we'd be talking about that. Endlessly. And Joe Cox's death was blamed by some people almost instantly upon Brexit and leave. And, 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 and I, I, I remember it vividly. And, what it, and, and, hey, that death was incredibly tragic. And when it happened, it changed my whole attitude towards politics. I thought after that, I thought, I've got to be nicer. I've been too, I've been too cruel and cynical. I've got to be nicer. At the same time that death did not change the outcome of the referendum, not because the British public are hard-hearted, but because they can see the distinction between a crazed individual and an, an entirely legitimate political yes. cause. In the same way, by the yes. way, that people can see a distinction between a crazed individual and Islam, the two things are completely different and shouldn't be confused in people's minds. Tim Stanley, final question. Can we save Western civilization? Of course we can. It's been through this many times before. It always turns... One of the great things about it is its capacity for reinvention. This is a very positive book. It can be done, and it will be done. That was Tim Stanley with an upbeat last final flourish. Thank goodness we need a bit of that. Right, OK, here we go. The end of the show. You know what it is, don't you, regular viewers? It is Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions, which I do not get sight of until right now. So here goes. Mark asks, with the Prime Minister and nearly all politicians banging on about climate change and build back green, why aren't their ministerial cars electric? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm sure they will be very, very Soon, although I think I'm right in saying that Allegra Stratton, who is the government spokes spokesperson on environmental issues, has admitted having a diesel car. You can use the word hypocrite if you choose to. Rob asks me, who would you like to interview first on your show, Boris or the Donald? Um, I don't mind. I don't mind. I do get on with one of them rather better than the other, um, but, I, but I don't mind. I mean, and here's the point. Here's the point about GB News as a station. You know, we're happy to interview people, whatever their political opinion, whatever side of the spectrum they come from. It's just that we, as a station, do not represent constantly the narrow metropolitan mindset that comes from a few central London postcodes. And I think we're doing that really quite well. Erica asks... Oh, here we go. Your surname is quite unusual. Where does it come from? I don't know. I mean, look, what do you park your car in? That's a G-A-R-A-G-E. This is an F-A-R-A-G-E. Some people think it's from Huguenot descent. It may well be. It may well be. More unusual is Nigel, because Nigels are disappearing. 
At the Times took great delight today to say that fewer than three people in the United Kingdom were named Nigel last year. Indeed, more people were called Lucifer than Nigel, which I think is what many on the Remain side uh, thought I was then and probably still do now. Um, it's not my fault. The decline of Nigel's is not all my fault. It's been in decline since 1974. There's my defence. Gareth asks me, has vegan carry made Boris virtually declare war on the farmers? Well, he did say at the Tory conference that um, up to 30% of our agricultural land would be rewilded. That means it'll be rural desolation. Goodness only knows what that means for vermin and all sorts of other problems, but they seem to be thrilled with it. It all comes from Richmond. Last one. Neil asks me, do the Conservatives want to win the next general election? Well, the fortunate thing they've got, and I was just discussing this with the Bow Group, take something like the cross-channel migrants. It's making the blood boil of many traditional Conservatives, many Red Wall Conservatives too, but with no Labour opposition, doesn't make much difference. <laughs>